This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrilled today to be joined by one of our favorite guests, Dr. Michelle Cesana. Dr. Cesana is the Vice President of Quality, Safety, and Performance Improvement at IU Health, Indian University of Health. Indian University of Health has just become this magnificent health system and academic medical center. Uh, just a, a fabulous place, fabulous university-driven health system. Dr. Cesana, can you take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about IU Health today? Sure. Thanks, Scott, for having me. So I'm Michelle Cesana. I'm a pediatrician by background and still practice as a pediatric hospitalist at uh, Riley Hospital for Children, our children's hospital in, in IU Health. And then, I, as you said, I serve as the um, chief quality and safety officer for the health system and then newly acquired a role um, in the middle of, of COVID uh, as the chief medical officer um, for virtual care, which is a new role that we have at IU Health. And, and I'm excited to be part of that. That's um, because of some of the work I did um, during COVID, along with our virtual care team to stand up our virtual screening hub for COVID, as well as um, a lot of our other programs that we have uh, ongoing and we're continuing to grow. Um, IU Health is we serve um, the majority of the state of Indiana. We're the largest health system in Indiana, and we're an academic um, health system. So we have the we're partnered with Indiana University School of Medicine, which is one of the largest medical schools in the country. And so we're very fortunate to have that partnership. And then we're divided up into regions across um, IU across Indiana, and and have you know anywhere from an academic medical center in downtown Indianapolis with our children's hospital and then have community hospitals and then um, as far as uh, out into our rural communities and have six critical access hospitals. A large, very, we have a very large academic um, physician group as well as um, four other, or three other physician groups as well. Um, and so have services, a wide range of service, um, services, medical services, clinical services across the continuum of care, uh, including um, we have the health plan to um, and have have uh, next gen ACO and have um, risk lives. And so, so we're, I'm excited to be here um, to talk to you today. I think uh, we can share some of the, the work we're doing as well and, and what we're facing today. So excited to get started. So, thank you so much. And just magnificent. So tell us about, I mean, if you would have told, you know, my parents, someone was going to be chief medical officer of virtual care, they would have said that sounds like the Jetsons. That that sounds insane. <laughs> and, and 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 I date myself by using the reference to the Jetsons. I am certain that Jay, my producer, who's brilliant but a young person, has no idea what I'm talking about when I say the Jetsons. And I'll ask her about it afterwards. But <laughs> um, you know, you know, but 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 the chief medical officer of virtual. How does that look? What, what are your priorities yeah. in that? How do you handle that? Talk to us about that a little bit. Oh, sure. That's great. And I love the reference to the Jetsons, like, you know, George Jetson. And that's awesome. Um, I have a feeling my parents and my definitely my grandmother would have said the same thing, too, with, with virtual care. I mean, so in, in IU Health, we think about it in a couple of different ways. We think about it. We think about virtual care as what we provide sort of direct to patients. So our physicians um, providing visits, you know, via a telemedicine platform to our patients. And, and we have significant, up, um, you know, uptake as, as every health system did across the country during COVID um, in virtual visits. Uh, and so that's part of it. And we provide in, in the virtual care world um, in IU Health, we provide sort of the technical support for all of that. And then we have, um, 
under the virtual care umbrella that for the system, we have a number of programs that we actually oversee both the clinical and the technical side. So for example, um, one of those programs we stood up during COVID that we had been working on was hospital at home. So we had not had a hospital at home program prior to COVID, but our population health team was looking at that for how could we provide that for our, um, some of our risk lives um, patients and, and looking at prevention of um, admission to the hospital and be able to provide those services in people's homes. So we pivoted that work and during COVID um, did that as uh, providing that as an opportunity and an option for patients to be discharged from the hospital who had COVID to be able to continue their care in their homes. And we served over 900 patients and still have that standing um, today as well. So that's that's one program. The program we probably had the most experience with prior to COVID in virtual care was actually our um, virtual behavioral health. So we have rolled out um, virtual behavioral health services to all of our emergency departments across um, IU Health prior to the, the pandemic where um, they could, uh, our if patients came into the ED and were, um, you know, had immediate issues that needed um, care con and consultation, um, any of our hospitals could reach out to our virtual behavioral health team and they would provide them um, access to the team, you know, via a virtual platform and they get face-to-face you know, via the virtual platform, obviously, but face-to-face -face, um, care with our team. That has exploded, too. Um, and, and then we also do um, virtual palliative care as well and a few other things that are on the horizon. Do you ever end up coaching physicians and how to do virtual care or working with them or making sure the virtual care looks how you want it to look? How, how does that evolve, sort of? Yeah, so that's a great question. So prior to prior to the pandemic, we spent um, when 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 physicians wanted to do it when because we sort of had a pull strategy more than a push strategy really in virtual care. We spent um, time helping them, you know, stand it up, um, walking through, you know, orienting them, um, and and it was on the order, the magnitude of hours with them. Then fast forward to everybody had to go on it within a, you know, a few days and we couldn't quite scale that same thing up. So now our, we just, we didn't have the time in the, and the physicians didn't have the time either. So now we're going back and doing some of that work, including actually one really important piece is that we're, we're on a, we're, headed towards being on a single platform. So when the pandemic hit, you know, we, we like many other health systems just said, use whatever you can, you know, that's, that's HIPAA compliant and the public and it's covered by the public health emergency. But it's, if it's easier for you to use Zoom Health, use Zoom Health. If it's easier for you to use Amwell, use Amwell, what, whatever the, or, or um, Teams or whatever the platform. But what we've realized is now our patients, that that's actually fairly confusing to them, right? If, if they're seeing multiple physicians in our system and we're using different platforms. So we've actually worked towards, and that was in fact a meeting I was on right before this call on um, how do we now better define our workflows, better train, go back and, and better train our teams, our, including our physicians and our you know, medical assistants and our nurses, um, as well as helping our patients. So it's much more seamless because during the pandemic, everyone, everyone understood why it had to be that way. Now we need to go back and, and um, really do that, be more intentional with that and, and make it smoother um, so that our patients get 
the same experience regardless of whether they see a, you know, a gastroenterologist or a primary care physician. We're not asking them to try to log on to multiple platforms. So that's been a big piece of it, um, I would say, as well. Are there certain areas or specialties, and, and I know this is obvious in some ways, but that are easier for virtual health than others? And how is that? I mean, obviously, you can't do a surgical procedure virtually, but, but <laughs> outside of doing surgery, are there certain areas where it's much easier to do virtual visits than other areas? What are, you, what are some of your observations so far? Yeah, I would say definitely. That's definitely true. And there are actually certain visits it's easier to do than others. Um, so... So one of the things we found out was um, that our, our patients actually prefer um, follow-up visits to be done virtually. So um, we have a we we have a great group of patients that we meet with on a monthly basis um, for virtual care to get feedback from them, and they're all ages, all all, dif- all different demographics. So this is not just because um, a lot of people think that I think had um, probably sort of misconceptions that virtual care was only going to work for the younger generation. And this group of um, patients is is representative of all generations. And they will tell you from the patient perspective, they're like, you know, look, I I have, you want to see me three or four times a year for my chronic disease. I'm happy to see you once a year in person and drive to you. But you know what? The other couple of visits, let's do those virtually because I'm not sure that you need to see me face-to-face, right? If you're going to review my labs and you're checking in on how I'm doing and you don't have to necessarily do a a physical exam that requires me listening to your heart and lungs or feeling your belly or whatnot, then, then let's, let's do that virtually. And so we're realizing that with our, you know, our physicians too. And then there's some of our physicians that will tell us, especially like behavioral health is a great example that for the most part, people, are much more willing to do it virtually um, than they are to come in in person because of sort of the, especially in small towns, the um, the potential, st- the stigma that exists around mental health. Um, and then knowing that if I go into an office and my neighbors are going to see me in the waiting room, um, what's that going to look like, that kind of thing. And if I can do it in, in the comfort of my own home, nobody ever knows. Um, so certainly I think that's uh Behavioral health has a lot of opportunity, and then there are other, you know, other um, specialties too, where we can use devices to help um, with that. If if you do need to do auscultation and and things like that, um, that makes it a little bit trickier. But a lot of specialties um, will tell you that they can they can do it, but maybe not for all visits. So I think that's the interesting thing is that there are probably depending on the visit um, and depending on the type of of like what. Whether we're, you know, trying to make a treatment plan, or, or I actually need to physically examine you, that's probably when I need to see you. I would say the other interesting thing we've seen is it makes it much easier for patients to bring people with them to the visit too. So I think of that in terms of like my my mom has um, heart issues. It's even though we live here in the same city, it's much easier for me to potentially attend a virtual visit with her. I can do that from my desk in my office. Um, I don't have to drive somewhere with her, meet her, do all those things. And so that even becomes more important when patients have loved ones that are, you know, two or three states away or something like that, it's much easier for them to hop on. So I think those are some things we have to consider too um, in, in what makes it easier and what, what um, appointments are appropriate as well. Do, do, if you're a doctor, 
does the doctor love having other family members on the phone or in the on the on the virtual, or do they feel like they're being watched? I think it's very different based on family and based on physicians yeah. and so forth. What's what's your sense of that? Some doctors must hate that. Others must love it. What, what's your sense of that? It's, it's well, not too different than when the when a, when a patient's family member comes in the in the room with the exactly. doctor. Exactly. So the doctor's like. Right. doesn't like it. What? <laughs> well, so I'd say as a pediatrician, I, I don't know. It, it's actually much more um, unusual for me not to have parents in a room, and that's with teenagers. But um, so I'm very used to having people in a room. It's it's actually odd when they're not there. Um, but I would say yes for adults. I think it's I think it's a little of both. I think especially if um, it's especially helpful when you're trying to explain something complex to a patient to have another person in the room. And I always I always tell patients that, you know, the best thing about that is you had another set of ears um, to, to help ask to, to hear what the doctor was saying and also ask questions. So I think it, it um, I think most most physicians welcome having family members in the room, especially because they, the family members might be the caregivers too, you know, especially as we think about our older patients um, whose, whose children might be, you know, helping care for them. So it's actually helpful to have them there. Um, you're, you're right. There are probably some physicians who don't appreciate it as well. Um, and it also depends, I would say, on the dynamic Um with the family too, uh, because they may not all be in agreement um, with how they want mom treated. Um, but I think that's uh, that's part of what we do as physicians is to help explain and make sure people understand and are making informed decisions about their care. Um, so in my mind, I think it's a good thing to have them there because then if I have them there early on in the conversation, if things are progressing down a way and, and um, you know, the patient is getting sicker or we're talking about end of life, it's, it is usually much more helpful to have had the family members involved in that conversation earlier on than bringing everybody in later, um, you know, and, and having that's the first time you meet the whole family or, or the family members. Let me ask you another question. Chief Medical Officer of Virtual Health. Virtual Health is sort of one of these areas. There's a lot of strange, different competition evolving around. There's yeah. companies that are popping themselves up as telehealth companies. There's payers that are doing it. There's all these new entrants. What do you when when you think about this? Do you think about it? This is a whole different lane of competition that you've got to respond to. How do you sort of see that evolving? Do you have your? I mean, at what point? Like there must have been some point years ago where doctors' offices started to see it was probably very small amounts for a period of time, then a much larger amount of patients that were peeled off that would have mm-hmm. been initial visits, but instead went to local urgent cares. Right. At, at what point do doctors that were quite busy, they might still always stay so busy, there's such a shortage of physicians, but start to feel like, hey, I thought I was going to see that that patient and XYZ would ever, you know, telehealth company you know, teledoc or whatever it was, there is an actual right. teledoc. There is a teledoc, yes. Actually ended up getting the visit from right. off the internet or some other way. At what mm-hmm. point does that start touching a, you know, a, a not a significant percentage of patients? Yeah, I th- you know, I think, I think we're, we're close to being there if we're not there. Um, because, and we, we do view that in virtual care as a, as very much a comp- 
there, that's competition for us, right? Because if we want to, you know, I, IU Health's vision is to make Indiana, you know, one of the healthiest states in the nation. We have a ways to go to do that. So we've got to provide access. And that's a big, that's, that's a big push for us is to, to have better access for our patients um, to primary care and specialty care. And so we think very much about that. And when we talk about access, we talk about access in all different ways, whether that's same-day primary care access, whether that's virtual care, whether that's in-person care. Um, so how do we make it really, really easy um, for our patients to come see us so that they don't potentially get peeled off by another urgent care but that, or by another provider, right, um, for virtual care? That exists today. So we actually do um, provide on-demand um, uh, virtual care, which is like the equivalent of urgent care, but it's um, it's a virtual care platform. Um, and we, we provide that for our patients as well because we want to try to make it easier. Um, but I think that competition's real. I think it's here. Um, it, it exists as we see um, new models of care coming into the market, and and you think about things like hospital at home. Uh, that that's you know that is going to be I think more and more we're going to see that. How can we provide more care in the home? Um, and I think for us as a health system, and I think all health systems, because we're we're big and complex, right? And those those organizations, those companies tend to be more nimble. We have to figure out how we can keep pace with that. Um, and and what COVID did, I think, for many health systems, especially at IU Health, it showed us that we could change. We we could we could transform quickly. We stood up programs that we never would have stood up in the amount of time. But that's because we had a singular focus. We were very nimble, and so I think where we're at. Um, is that we want to maintain that um, that pace of change um, because we know that there are new entrants in the market, right? We know those people are those those companies are out there, um, and if we don't do it, they will do it. Um, and so, so how do we how do we keep that sort of rapid um, rapid pace of change, rapid iteration? You know, and and I think I'll wear my you know quality and safety and process improvement hat and. How do we how do we continue rapid cycle process improvement? Um, because we we did it and now we have to keep doing it because otherwise we'll we'll get beat out. Another question for you: It's yeah. um, doctors. There are plenty of doctors. I mean, certainly like for the last <laughs> year and a half, I've been doing you know all this stuff by podcast, talking to people right. virtually and by phone. You know, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a freaking pleasure. I get to talk to a million people. Some days I'm <laughs> right. dressed up, some days I'm not dressed up. It's just, a, and I get to visit with so many people, and I, I find it to be fascinating. I enjoy it tremendously. Like I've got a, you know, somebody. I've got to meet somebody for lunch today in person, and right. he's like, oh my god, I got to motivate to do that and get, you know, I can get put together and stuff <laughs> like that. So, how many doctors are going to sort of will this prolong the careers of some physicians? They'll ultimately say at sixty plus years old. Oh my goodness! If I never see a patient in person again in my life, and I yeah. do it by phone or by video, God bless. Will there be doctors that increasingly specialize in just seeing patients virtually, and maybe not doctors? I mean, I'm sure doctors say it sometimes. If I could see 90 percent of my patients virtually rather than in person, that would be terrific. I'm sure it is probably becoming a thing where people talk like that. Mm -hmm. will, will, will there be doctors that just really much prefer? Can I do this virtually? And you can't do it for all specialties, but there's a lot you can. Right. I mean, what will that look like in terms of doctors sort of moving towards 
like, you know, radiologists have done this forever. Right. Not all right. of them, but a good deal mm-hmm. of them through teleradiology. What, what amount of doctors will start to say, or will there be some that say, I just prefer this? I just prefer right. to do it virtually. And what, what's your, are you starting to hear some of that? Is there some of that? What does that look like? Oh, I, I definitely think so. And I don't think it's just going to be for people who are like towards the end of their careers. I think there will be people that do this um, even earlier. You know, I, I, I think this appeals in a lot of ways um, to to people who want flexible schedules. So so as a so I'm I'm a mom of three. I have three busy teenagers, and my husband is a physician too. Now I I love what I do. I love the role I have, and I I wouldn't do it. But if I were entering into to medicine. This this would be a, a potential path to go down to be able to have some flexibility, right? To be able to be at home and and do this, and then you know when you're when you're done, you're done. There's not a, a commute home or anything like that. So I, I do think there's that that's going to be a role. I think the other piece of that though is how back to one of your earlier questions about training people i think now training programs will have to incorporate this um into into training right into residency because we have to give people experience um in how you do this because it's it's a it's different than when you see patients in person too um there's some nuances to it there's some things you have to you have to be very um cognizant cognizant of too um but i I imagine that we'll see more and more people you know we have um we have some we have some telenocturnists that do um that provide coverage for our hospital at home program as well as um for our critical access hospitals and and they are actually at home and they're providing that coverage via you know via our telehealth platform and, and, it, um, and it must be so much easier to recruit yeah. people yes, and, and right. to keep people if they've right. got more flexibility no, i mean right. I, I guess it's no different than any other any other profession originally lawyers thought they can only work from the office right now, many of them work remote you know, right it, there's this huge war on on at, at there's this huge war to all these big professional services firms these law firms these everything firms. yes yes between our people coming back are they coming back hybrid how are they coming right. back and it's become a real recruiting tactic to say no 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 you work no, no. you want to work from it's right. okay right right well and i think the other piece of it is then they potentially don't have to move right if you can if you know if if some of the things um, get solved from a, a licensure piece and, and that, that type of thing, then people may not have to move um, and uproot their family, but could still take a different role, take a different job somewhere else and work remote, just like they are in other industries, too. So I think it that it opens up a whole new um, new sort of workforce path for workforce as well, which is, is very, very cool. Um, I think for people and not to mention also for, you know, our advanced practice providers as well, who, um, who we, we have a lot of advanced practice providers that help us in virtual care as well. Just fascinating. You see how this will be a whole evolving work workplace issue. And it really has the ability to, Oh, to 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 lessen burnout and make for a much more yeah. manageable long-term career too for a lot of specialties. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah, and I think that's something we really have to look out right. I mean, we already had burnout issues before the pandemic, and now they're just you know heightened even more, and people are 
are tired. And, and I think that's why people are, you know, not, not just in medicine, but other people are contemplating leaving the workforce um, earlier um, because of the burnout too. So how do we, how do we combat that in some way to make this still make medicine and healthcare still a profession that people want to go into? A hundred percent. Dr. Sesana, can't tell you how much I appreciate you visiting with us and, and, and such a pleasure to learn more about from the front lines what this virtual chief medical officer looks like, but also sort of the evolving workplace that surrounds yeah. it and, and, and makes it all work. Uh, th- thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. What a pleasure, Dr. Sesana. Thank You're you welcome. Much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.